Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, we're taking the show on the road. We're celebrating 25 years of Worldview. We'll broadcast from Toronto, Detroit, Dearborn, and Flint. And today, we start in the land of the Ashinabek and Atawandaran in London, Ontario. We are here for the Global Music Festival Sunfest. Like Worldview, Sunfest is marking 25 years this year, and we found out about Sunfest from Catalina Maria Johnson, our music and culture writer and host of Beat Latino on Vocalo, and it's great to see you here in Canada, Catalina. Here we are in London, Ontario. Who would have thunk? <laughs> well, you talked it up so much, and I said, well, we should go there, and we made it happen. I know. Jerome said, that's not that far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the amazing thing is, last night, the Prime Minister of Canada was here, Justin Trudeau. Unbelievable, but true. And it's truly a matter of finally uh, Sunfest in some ways getting the recognition it's deserved for a long time. It's truly a space that has brought people together, has brought music and community and a very diverse audience together. And I think that's uh, very much in line with the Prime Minister's thinking. It's my understanding that it's not that an invitation was extended, but there was a desire to come here. This festival showcases the best of London, the best of Canada in its diversity. The range of music, the range of voices, the range of cultures that get celebrated here are celebrated at Sunfest, but are also celebrated every single day in Canada, in London, and we are a model to the world of openness and diversity. Because Canadians know better than just about anyone else that diversity is something that makes us strong and resilient. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada at Sunfest, at the opening of Sunfest. Uh, Quite a thrill. And I'm here with Catalina Maria Johnson at Sunfest, and we're here to enjoy ourselves at Sunfest, really. And get got, some dancing in. <laughs> I, I plan in. to see Jerome dance. It'll be embarrassing for me <laughs> and for the people around me. <laughs> I've seen some moves, Jerome. Everybody busts <laughs> the moves that they want to bust around here. And I am delighted to have the founder of Sunfest here with me, Alfredo Kashach. Excellent. Excellent. I'm <laughs> working on my Quechua names there. And he founded this festival 25 years ago when world music probably was not that big a thing in London and in Ontario. Uh, what was it like 25 years ago? Oh, well, you know, 25 years ago, London was a totally different community. I came here with my wife and my son in 1985, the end of 1985, as a political refugee. And You're originally from Guatemala. Originally from Guatemala, yes. We left the country under very difficult circumstances. Um, as you know, the political conflict there, and the family was affected. I lost two brothers in this struggle. And from one day to another, we are here in London, Ontario, and truly it was a cultural shock because we arrived in, in November and some immigration officers were waiting for us in Toronto with uh, coats and socks and boots and stuff like that. And, and we rejected, you know, to take this stuff. So why do we need that? We don't that. Anyway, we just couldn't believe it when we went outside and it was uh, very cold, we, something that we had never experienced before. But anyway, coming to London, it was a truly an absolutely WASP community. Really, there was no diversity at all. There was no colors, you know. It, 
It was a, a challenging city to get adjusted, you know, because right away we suffer discrimination, racism immediately. So I was a professional musician in, in Guatemala, and the first thing that I wanted to do was to play music here again. And I was able to connect with some musicians. And really my first cultural shock perhaps was when I went to Toronto the first time uh, to see this diverse number of people and I just couldn't believe that people living here in Canada from many cultures you know. and then this idea of saying this is amazing you know, this is a window of opportunities to learn so much about the whole world here in Canada and then that idea of saying well it would be nice to do something that could truly reflect that diversity but in a, an artistic way. And we started doing some kind of a music series, and the very first time that we brought a salsa band to London, it was a big hit, or a South Indian group, a Japanese type group, all of them coming from Toronto because nothing existed in London. The reaction of people was absolutely amazing. And they, it was something like a new world is presented to them, right? You and grew it. Exactly. When we came out the very first year, with the sun, the logo. I mean, that was a big sensation here in this community. I remember doctors, offices, lawyers, and they're asking for a copy of the poster because it was something new, fresh in this community. And that's exactly what happened. I knew that the most challenging thing was going to be to establish the festival in the very first few years, but I also was quite sure that after that, it was a matter of time. And you have, at this point, hundreds of thousands of visitors every year. I mean, it's huge. And there's how many vendors? I mean, because there's like arts and crafts and massage and hippie uh, pants. I almost and bought a cashmere pillowcase. <laughs> cashmere pillowcase right before we walked And down. food. I mean, yes. how many vendors? We have almost 300 uh, exhibitors. It's a huge market. I truly believe it's one of the largest markets in a festival of this nature. I mean, in many festivals across Canada, and they don't have this nice complement. But particularly the food element, it has become almost like a mini festival within the festival because so many people come because so many community groups are, you know, selling their food, the tradition, and um, it's the only time during the whole year, you know, that these community groups get together. They don't have a restaurant. They don't have business. This is the only time you want to try this spectacular Nicaraguan food, for example, you know. It's only during Sunfest because then it's gone. But that's the beauty, the Vietnamese community, the Persian community, the Salvadorian community, all these communities just prepare themselves for this particular weekend, like, which is something incredible. I mean, London's been really welcoming the people ultimately uh, over the years. I, I know that we're going to be talking about uh, the 2,000 Syrian refugees who have settled in London recently, and, and London's less than 400,000 people, but it's, it's a significant its numbers one. up by immigration. It is a very significant one. When we arrived, I think, at the wave of Central Americans at that time, it was in the eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people, you know, that arrived, and then there was a huge wave of Colombians as well. I think they are between fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people now in, in London, so it's a large community as well. So, I, as I said, we truly believe that a festival of this nature has really been instrumental in bringing people together because we've been creating all these spaces for all these people. You know, when they come here and they see that there is something that belongs to their heritage, to their culture, it's also not a unique opportunity for them and get to know 
what's going on in the rest of the world as well. So truly, Sandfest is the global village, you know, it's the whole world in one particular location. There is not a festival like this, at least in Canada, that really brings every. World music is being used as a complement for the programming in many festivals, but it's not a priority. In our case, that's what it is. You go to the bigger festivals in Canada, they have four, five, six different world music ensembles, but in other cases, so different. We focus on that, and that's what really has made us so different from the others. And I have to say, another kind of feature of Sunfest is the danceability of all the music. And besides being a musician, Alfredo is a spectacular dancer. <laughs> and um, mm. I first met uh, him and Mercedes, uh, his daughter, who's very involved in the administration and the curation at the World Music Expo in Europe. That's and correct. Alfredo and Mercedes were always in the front row, and they were always dancing up a storm. <laughs> and as we got to know each other, and I finally had the chance to visit last year, I have to truly say that whether the band is Korean or Chilean, <laughs> or it doesn't matter. It is the most danceable festival, and that brings people together. I mean, kind of this freedom to express themselves so easily at all ages. Truly, hijab wearing, non-hijab, I mean, everything, Palestinian scarves, it was just everything. Absolutely, and you probably have noticed that perhaps this is one of the very few festivals when you're walking and there is no barriers between the stages and the audience. This is a free environment. I remember bringing uh, one of the biggest African stars, uh, Sean Kuti, several years back, and I remember the French manager asking me, what is security? What is security? And I said, security for what? We're so afraid that people are going to jump into Sean Kuti. And I said, you know what? Nobody knows who Sean Kuti is here. You know? <laughs> and this is exactly what it is. Sometimes people have no clue. The iconic world music musicians that we're bringing into this community. But, you know. I'm talking with Alfredo Kashak. We are at Sunfest. He started Sunfest 25 years ago. Catalina Maria Johnson got us up here after talking it up last year on the show. Yeah. And we're having a great time at Sunfest. And do you have visions for what London and Canada are becoming culturally? You've seen it change a lot. What's the next 25 years look like in London? My real hope is that in 25 years we'll see the structures of many of the political and civil institutions here with more participation of people from other cultural backgrounds. We still a long way to go, at least in London at this moment. Uh, you go to City Hall and Hall Council with few exceptions. All the other institutions are pretty much dominated by one particular color. My hope is to see people who have landed in this community eventually being in positions where we can make decisions to make this community a truly more interesting, you know, a more inclusive community as well. That's my real hope. In terms of Sandfest, we are preparing for the next stage of the festival, which is really to expand the festival into the downtown core. The City of London has been making some improvements in the downtown core to make uh, one of the streets a uh, flex street. And the whole idea is to make it accessible for festivals, events. You know, I think it's part of the natural growth. After 25 years being in this, we have maximized the use of Victoria Park. You know, Sandfest now is, I always say, it's like a delicious uh, dish. When you try it, you taste it, you feel in love with it. 
you get addicted to this and this is precisely how we've been growing tremendously in terms of audience and numbers the word of mouth has been the most incredible promotion for us you know that's been the human effect when people come enjoy it you know i bet it happens with the musical community too and and you've got a reputation you, you can get the acts you want you, you... it is amazing it's a good question because 25 years ago i was looking for bands for groups and i used to go a lot to toronto and see because uh, okay well let's get this band but the story now is so different because many of these groups are making their first appearance in canada here at sunfest and why because they always said in sunfest book us we will make the tour around your dates it is incredible. It's almost like a waiting list of people who really want to come and play the festival. They come, they feel this free environment that they don't experience in other festivals. You know, there is so much restriction, security. And here is, you know, everyone is friend with everyone. And they, they I practically just... walked on stage yeah. with somebody. I was walking up the back end of this thing, uh, thing and I was like, whoa. Yeah, it, that's what it is. We're so proud of the artistic quality of the festival because really top notch. You know, as Catalina and all, you know, we go to almost 15 to 20 different markets all year, all over the world. And these are the most iconic groups that you can imagine in many of these countries. They're coming to London. But the most amazing thing for us, truly, is the social impact of the festival, you know. How the festival has been able to bring the whole community together. Because when you look at the demographics of people who are attending, it's from all social and economic status, all different cultural backgrounds. It's truly a festival that appeals to everyone. And that's why always we call Sunfest one of the most beautiful expressions of community. Alfredo Kashak, thanks for having us here at Sunfest. And, and Catalina echoed that on social media last night. She was like, wow, this is everything a festival should be for uh, community and people coming together. Everything the world should be. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Music, libations, and dancing. What else? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I sincerely thank you for giving me the chance. And, and um, hopefully in, in the near future, we'll continue, you know, bringing more and more people from outside of these borders. Thanks a lot for having us, Alfredo Kashak, here in London, Ontario, at Sunfest, the 25th anniversary of Sunfest. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We've taken the show on the road. We're in London, Ontario, and coming back after the break, we will talk with a member of Parliament from London who represents the city's diversity. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road this week. We'll broadcast from Toronto, Detroit, Flint. And today we are in London, Ontario, and we're talking about worldview-type issues in the Great Lakes region. You can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus, also on social media at hashtag wvbus. I'm here in London with Terence Kernigan. He is the provincial MP from London North Centre. Terence is the first openly gay person to hold the seat. He's from the NDP, the New Democratic Party. They're a social democratic party to the left of the Liberal Party. Thanks for joining me, Terence. Thank you very much, Jerome. You were just elected in 2018. You were a teacher and activist. Why did you run for parliament here? Well, I got 
very frustrated being a teacher and seeing the way in which special education and mental health needs were funded within our school system. And so rather than sit on the sidelines, I decided to put my name forward. But there were further decisions by the government that really upset me. Uh, we had a publicly owned utility, uh, Ontario Hydro, and I watched as governments started to dismantle it and take it apart and sell it off. It was something that used to be studied by Harvard Business School. It was a wonderful institution uh, in order to provide you know, a low-rate electricity to the population, and it's something, unfortunately, the government has made a huge mess of. So it's time to uh, put my name forward and try to fight these uh, reckless decisions. Now, at the same time you were elected, so was Doug Ford as the provincial leader, and he has a completely opposite point of view than you. He's, he's cutting everything. Uh, I know you were kind of carried out of the provincial legislature uh, at one point. Can you give us some idea of what the dynamics are here? Well, we see a government that says one thing and does another. It's been an entirely difficult experience watching what they've done. I mean, they preach fiscal austerity, and yet they're spending $5 billion more than the previous government, and they've rewarded you know, multinational corporations and their wealthy friends with tax breaks, all while cutting health care and cutting services that people rely upon. It's something that is truly frightening. You know, They go and say that they're investing money, but they're not even investing enough to keep up with inflation. You were protesting in the legislature. Explain what happened there. Well, they were going to enact what is known as the notwithstanding clause. It's basically the kill switch for our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it's something that an Ontario government has never enacted in the past. And it's something that should only be done under very specific purposes. It's something that, uh, you know, students in high school and in university would write essays about, but something that I could not believe that our provincial government was discussing. What they wanted to do is they wanted to trample all over an election that was happening for Toronto City Council midway through the election. They wanted to change the number of seats because we see that the Premier wants to involve himself in municipal politics. It's happening here in London as well, overdose prevention sites. People are frustrated and they're frustrated with their government officials because we see that a government has been increasingly out of touch. Our previous government spent money on you know, some vanity projects, ones that did not achieve the results that were intended. And I think people were angry and people were frustrated and people wanted change. Unfortunately, uh, people did not vote for a change for the better. Uh, they voted for a change for change's sake. And I think a lot of people are now regretting the decision to put uh, Premier Ford in office because what has happened here has been nothing short of a dumpster fire. I'm talking with Terence Kernigan. He is the provincial MP from London North Centre. We're on the road in London, Ontario today and talking about some of the common issues we all have uh, while we look at the Great Lakes region here and tour the Great Lakes region. I wanted to ask you about something that was personal for you. You helped with a change in curriculum in the schools involving LGBTQ rights and things. Explain what happened there. Well, during the election campaign, the conservative, uh, it was actually the conservative leadership campaign, they discussed uh, repealing the health and phys ed curriculum. And it was something they said that families wanted, but unfortunately that was something nobody wanted. They took out principles like consent. They took out principles like LGBTQ families and voices. It's been something that has been an utter disgrace. Uh, so they took a 2015 curriculum and went back to 1998 before cell phones, before social media, before texting and it's really put an entire cohort of students at risk. And uh, further, during one of their conventions, they actually passed a resolution to declare that trans people, gender identity was a theory. It's actually telling a human being that their life 
is not something that is real. So it's been really upsetting watching this happen and students have walked out of school in the thousands. And now these were students in high schools, students that weren't directly affected by this elementary, you know, grades K through eight curriculum. And they knew exactly how meaningful this curriculum was and they did not want to see it go back in time. But further to that, I mean, we've seen so many other disturbing things that this government has done. They set up a snitch line. Uh, the Premier himself did not want certain topics covered within classrooms, and so a snitch line was set up so that if teachers did cover that curriculum, parents could then uh, talk to the College of Teachers and talk to the Ontario government and say they're covering something that is objectionable. There was an online consultation, and people overwhelmingly supported the 2015 curriculum. And then the Premier's response to that was that certain groups had affected the results. Well, you know, on the side of the official opposition, we have a name for certain groups. We call them Ontarians. <laughs> now, Doug Ford's slogan is for the people, right? Or uh, something. So who are the people? Well, it does make one wonder. I think it has to do with the people who are, you know, pulling the strings. I mean, we see slogans like for the people and buck a beer and all these sorts of things. And it's rather frightening that a government is sort of short on policy, but huge on slogans. You know, they wanted to change our license plate. They put up ridiculous highway signs saying open for business. And I mean, meanwhile, they're not getting the, the cost of electricity down. Uh, to move over to kind of cultural uh, issues, we were talking yesterday with Alfredo Kashak, the founder of Sunfest, and he was talking about how London's changed, how it's more inclusive, the different waves of immigration that have come. As a lifelong Londoner, how would you describe what's happened here? Well, you know, Sunfest is a prime example of multiculturalism, and it's not simple words. You know, a lot of people will uh, have the words about multiculturalism and how racism is wrong, but those are just words and theories. This is actually multiculturalism put into practice. Uh, what we see from Alfredo is really somebody who embodies the spirit of Canada and the idea that uh, everybody belongs. It is an entire community. So people get to come here, they get to experience different places, uh, different foods, different music, different crafts. So it's truly a wonderful experience. You know, it's spanned the test of time. I wanted to ask a question about uh, something that's controversial in London and has to do with Saudi Arabia. And there's a $15 billion arms deal that Canada has with Saudi Arabia and General Dynamics Land Systems of Canada builds these tank vehicles, these light tank vehicles for Saudi Arabia. How do you uh, parse this issue? I mean, a lot of people don't want to do business with Saudi Arabia anymore, but this is a big jobs provider in the area. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, there are a lot of great people that work at General Dynamics, and it is a huge employer in the London area. You know, it is one thing that is something that's been under discussion with the federal liberals uh, as well as the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and it is a federal issue and, you know, one in which the, the province uh, doesn't have much of a role to play. So. Uh, has it been satisfying to become a MP for the provincial parliament? Do you miss teaching? Is it uh, everything it was cracked up to be? Well, you know, I love teaching. I, you know, loved working one-on-one -on -one with students and seeing those aha moments where they grasped the concept and, you know, really could work with their passions. So I will always miss that, but I absolutely love being an MPP for the area. And London is just a wonderful place to be. It's truly been an inspiration. I get to meet so many people who are doing just phenomenal work. London is a place where a lot of people across disciplines will collaborate and work together. It's truly a tight-knit but wonderful community. 
Terence Kernigan is the provincial MP from London North Centre here in London, Ontario. Great to meet you and thanks for joining us. And I think it's great that you're out here at Sunfest talking to people and meeting people. You're under a tent all the time and just talking to everybody who comes your way. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Jerome. I hope you enjoy uh, your tour of the Great Lakes. It's wonderful to have you here in London and I hope you'll uh, come back as well. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about refugee resettlement in Canada. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEC. My wife was born in Sarnia, so I've I've come a bunch of times. Oh, that's great. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're on the road this week broadcasting on worldview-type issues in the Great Lakes region. You can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus and on social at hashtag wvbus. I'm in London, Ontario at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center. Canada resettles refugees a little differently than the U.S., but the Cross-Cultural Learner Center is akin to a refugee resettlement agency in the U.S. And with me is Rafat Hussein. She is the Settlement Services Manager at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. And also with me is Omar Kudeda. He is a settlement counselor at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center. Nice to meet you, Omar. Nice to meet you. Tell us a little bit about how this organization evolved. It's been around since 1968, but it seems like it it kind of moved and evolved to what it is today. Again, we we started off again as in 1968, but it was an actually a world learning center, education center, and it just evolved from there. It was a small group of staff. It really solidified itself when we had our first large group of refugees coming in from Southeast Asia. Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia. Now the largest group that we had would be the Syrian population. And how did you both get involved with the organization? Omar? I'm kind of new here. Oh, <laughs> I've been good. here only a couple of years. I, I started working here uh, when they started bringing Yazidi refugees because I am a Yazidi. I've been here for 19 years. I came to do interpretation and then I found myself working here. <laughs> Could you give us a little bit of a rundown on the Yazidi populations in North America? I think people probably think that they're very recent, but you mentioned you've been here 19 years, and there are some established communities throughout North America. Yeah, in North America, the biggest community is in Lincoln, Nebraska, the USA. I believe there are around four or 5,000 people there. There are other communities, which is in Houston, Buffalo, I believe, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. In Canada, we are here, the biggest community, London, Ontario. We have over 200 families. We have another established community in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, Calgary, and Toronto. And the families who've come here to London, can you give us a little background on them? Most of the new arrivals, which is the majority, they came from directly from the camps in Iraq. They are uh, survivors of ISIS. When ISIS committed the genocide against the Yazidis August 2014, they captured so many women and children, and the people who escaped uh, Canada made this program to resettle 1,200 of them. We received around 100 families from this group, 
they are settling in London. Is there a reason why London ended up accepting a lot of Syrian refugees? I think in general, given the political wave of what we've gone through from a Canadian perspective, um, it was a breath of fresh air. And the number or the volume of people that were coming in through the government-assisted program, I think everyone was on board. I think it was more of an international crisis when they just saw that identity, that little image of the boy on the beach. It resonated with everyone. And that was the breaking point for everyone saying that, okay, we need to do something. And members in the community were thinking, okay, you are a resettlement agency. What are you doing? Or what can we do to help? Or how can we help? Now we have a young Yazidi woman here with us, and we were going to talk with her as well. Let's bring her in. Can you introduce her to us, Omar? Uh, I have here uh, Faiza. Yeah. She arrived uh, to London in uh, 2017. She's a high school student now, a brave young lady. Hi, Faiza. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. How do you like life in London here? Oh, I like it because it's not like Iraq back there. And it's better for, like, anyone that came to Canada. So, like, you have a future in, like, whatever you want to do, you're free. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to figure out uh, yeah. what you want to do in life. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? I'm thinking to finish high school. After high school, I want to go to university and then to become a doctor. Well, that's terrific. Um, I want to, like to tell everyone that to help other Yazidis people are back in Iraq, to bring the other people that are still missing and to find them, children and girls, women that are still missing. That's very important. Yeah. Like some of them need help even for medication. Some of them are sick or some of them like need to go to school, but they can't because... Their families are missing, and they don't have a future back there. And so, so Faiza and her family, can you give us a little background on them? They are one of the first arrivals. They were in ISIS captivity for s over around two years. Uh, her dad and a young sister still missing. With two siblings and her mom, she made it to London. Right away, we put them in schools. Uh, this is her second year in school. She just finished. She's a high school student, um, very brave girl. She's eager to finish school, go to university, and become a doctor. Well, I want to thank you for hosting us here, and it's been a great experience to be at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center. Thanks very much, Faiza, for joining us. You're welcome. Good luck on becoming a doctor. Thank you. And thanks very much, Omar Kudeda and he is a settlement counselor here at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center, and Rafat Hussein is the settlement services manager at the Cross-Cultural Learner Center here in London, Ontario. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. As I'm sure many of you heard, <clears throat> Milos Stalik from Facets passed away over the weekend. Milos was Worldview's film contributor for the last 25 years, but he contributed to WBEZ even longer than that. He started out around 1980 when he started helping Sandra Gare 
with her program Sandra on Sunday and Live at Lowry's. He became a regular on Midday with Sandra Gare, and I bumped into a recording of him recently in the late 80s talking with Sandra Gare about a film from the Soviet Union that broke new ground during Perestroika. Miloš's experience, wisdom, and insights will be irreplaceable, but not just for this station. Miloš made an incredible impact on people and the city and the world. On a personal level, a group of us just sat around recently and talked about how he had affected all our lives on a personal level. He had inspired our children. He had created great experiences for our families. Miloš gave me a couple of his silk ties recently as part of a quixotic campaign to upgrade my wardrobe and profile. Miloš was a mensch on a personal level. For the city, how do you quantify what Miloš and Facets has meant? When my friends and I were in high school, we got our driver's licenses, and one of the first things we did was drive into the city and see an edgy film at Facets. When my boys were young, one of my fondest memories was a day punctuated with a modern, edgy Japanese monster film at Facets. Recently, I had a great experience talking with people at Facets about universal basic income. Milos enriched our city with a lifetime of experiences at Facets. On a global level, Milos was an advocate for different cultures, women, and children. Milos created the first children's film festival in North America. His children's film camps were creating a new generation of filmmakers. Milos was creating a world where people didn't watch garbage. That's why he was so respected at film festivals around the world. That's why he was on the board of the Telluride Film Festival. He was independent. He had integrity. He did things for the right reason. Milos was promoting more than film. He was promoting the best of the human experience. Milos knew beauty had the ability to inspire us to be our best selves. There will be no replacing Milos Stalik. We'll be remembering our friend Milos Stalik over the coming weeks and months, so stay tuned as we pay tribute to a Chicago and global legend. Today we'll replay a chat Milos had with Chaz Ebert, the widow of late film critic Roger Ebert. They talked with Academy Award-nominated director Steve James about his film that chronicles Roger Ebert's end-of-life journey called Life Itself. Their conversation has ironic parallels to the journey of our dear friend Milos. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. So, Steve, your background has been doing social issue documentaries, which were always kind of in present time. And now, life itself, which is a departure. It's a biography. How, why did all this happen? Well, it happened when I was approached about the idea of doing a film about Roger based on his memoir. And I hadn't read the memoir when I was first approached about it. And then I read it. And, and you said yes right away? I didn't Before say, you read it? No, I did not. <laughs> I did not. Um, I wanted to say yes, but I really felt like I needed to read it. And frankly, had I read the autobiography and felt like it was mostly just going to be a story about an important film critic, 
I would have um, probably not done the movie. I think what really hooked me was this incredible life journey that he'd been on. Creatively, it's a different film. I mean, it shares in some ways what I've done in the past in the sense that we do follow Roger and Chaz in their life in the present. As it turned out, it ended up being the last four months of Roger's life. Um, but it is, in other respects, you know, my attempt to do a biographical documentary. And for me, it was exciting to do that creatively because my work is a bit more diverse than maybe some people are aware of, some of the other work that I've done. But it also was particularly exciting to do it in this case because the life story of Rogers was so entertaining, unexpected, and I think it really informed the kind of critic he became. And so to try to get my arms around all of that was something that was kind of an exciting challenge. So what special challenges did this biography pose for you? Well, it posed a lot of challenges. I mean, one was that Roger's life, you know, he likes to say it was uh, three acts. I think it was more like seven uh, when you really add it up. He had an early profound impact on film criticism by winning the Pulitzer. Then the show and a kind of reinvention of what film criticism could be in the age of television and for a mass audience. And then he reinvented himself again as a significant voice on the Internet in terms of legitimizing film criticism there. And that's just talking about his film criticism. So we're not talking about, you know, his adventures as a newspaper man coming to Chicago. We're not talking about his grand adventure with Chaz. We're not talking about um, the cancer and everything that came with that. So how do you in a single film try to get at the essence of this guy? And it, how do you? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, Milos, you should tell me if I succeed or not. I mean, he called his memoir Life Itself for a reason. And he didn't call it My Life in Movies. And so I felt a kind of not just obligation but a desire to try to get my arms around his personal life and the way in which his professional life interceded and intersected. But then I was also inspired, Milos, by the memoir, the way in which – it's beautifully written. It's Roger really looking back on his life from the vantage point of a man who has now uh, come to a place where he can no longer speak or eat. His life has been changed dramatically. And there was something very beautiful about the way he writes that memoir and looks back. And I tried or wanted to try to sort of pay homage, if you will, to what he did there in the memoir in, in the way I constructed the film. But how did you keep distance because at one level, to make a film, you have to be distant from the subject. And here is this larger-than-life itself character, actually, <laughs> yeah. which is very hard to contain. So we have to make a lot of choices, obviously, because otherwise – and there's a lot of footage because there's a lot of archival footage because he was a public persona. So there's a lot of material. So you're forced to make choices. And it's a story that's happening as you're doing it. So it's changing and you're getting sucked in. Emotionally, So how do you make this a film for an audience that knows a little bit about Roger but find that compelling connection? You know, one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the film is that, you know, people assume that Steve and Roger were friends because Roger championed Hoop Dreams 20 years ago. That's not true. They were acquaintances. They both lived in Chicago. We saw Steve at, you know, maybe industry-type events and Steve and Roger probably had some communication when Steve had a new movie coming out. They really were not friends. And I think that Steve started discovering things about Roger as he was doing this film 
that distance that he had helped in making the film because he's uncovering things the same way we uncover things as we're watching Roger's life unfold on the screen. So, Well, I also, in my work, I don't really try to maintain a kind of professional distance for my subjects. I actually try to sort of bond with them. I, I really do think of the films I've done and not just this film as films that I make with the subject as much as on a subject. And by subject, I mean person. And that's because I'm aiming for a kind of intimate connection. Now, the trick of that is, is that when you do that, you do run the risk of maybe having an impulse to want to protect them from themselves or cast them in a way that could be just completely favorable. Uh, but, I saw no such impulse here. <laughs> but, I, I don't think you were trying to protect us from uh, but the, the tr- medical procedures, no. anything. I mean, it's all in there. You're listening to Worldview and WBZ. I'm Milo Stalik, and I'm talking with filmmaker Steve James, whose film about Roger Ebert is called Life Itself, and with Chaz Ebert. So, Steve, you were talking about intimate connection and finding this intimate connection with your subject and making it translatable to the audience. What is that intimate connection that's in the film? You know, I started out to want to film his life and Chaz's life in the present to just sort of show how they navigate their lives these days since Roger has been through all that he's been through. I mean, Roger was maybe the easiest person I've ever tried to engage in a movie on this subject, which is from the get-go, he was just going to be himself. I mean, he let me see not just difficult medical procedures and film them, but also, you know, his stubbornness and, and you know, sometimes his impatience as well as his tremendous sense of humor. The guy, I mean, you know this because you knew Roger well. It's like what he prized in documentaries as well as any kind of film was honesty, candor, intimacy, taking you someplace where you haven't been. And I think he looked at this project once he said, okay, I'm going to do this. And he said, I can't apply a different standard to this film because it's on me than I would if I were going to watch a film on anybody else. You know, I think, Chaz, the one thing that always struck me about Roger, and I think also comes through the film, is that although he was a public figure, I mean, he wrote, as he got ill, his private persona really infused his writing more and more and more. And that's kind of a remarkable journey. I wonder about that sometimes. I wonder whether people became more aware of it because he didn't have his physical voice, so they honed in on it more. To me, his, I'm just going to use the word humanity, deepened. I saw it. His warmth, his tolerance. He was always tolerant, but his patience, his compassion, that definitely deepened. But there was a kind of an opening up in a way because he started writing all of these non-film articles and yeah. blogs and you know and standing up for issues that he felt very compassionate about i mean not that he ever held back right at, in his opinions and that's the part that i'm talking about i admired him because he was fearless roger stood up for the underdog and he didn't care who it was against even if it was against his own personal interest um so i love that about him you know bill knack told us it's not in the film but he said that back in college when roger and he were in school together and on the daily Illini together that Roger had in mind that he was going to come to Chicago, he's going to be a newspaper man for a while, and then he was going to graduate to columnist, to the op-ed page. And then he eventually said he had designs to become a novelist. But that op-ed part of him, I think, was there early on. And I think it just really flowered, it seems like, in the later years. I mean, truly flowered. 
you said not in the film, so there's all this wealth of material. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so obviously editing this film and this material and making a compelling story out of it was a huge amount of work and a big challenge. So what was the challenge? What are you most uh, unhappy about that you had to leave out? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked that question because it was actually only last night for the first time that I wasn't as dissolved in tears watching it, and I started marveling at the editing job. Good question. Yes. Well, you know, they say writing is rewriting. Um, I think filmmaking, particularly documentary filmmaking, is re-editing. And when I read the memoir, his voice was so wonderful in it, I wanted him to really kind of narrate this film. And I wanted it to be largely chronological, like the memoir is, but not exclusively so, because Roger... Being a creature of habit, he went to Cannes for 40 years. He went to the Conference on World Affairs for 40 years, and he devotes chapters to each of those. And so I wanted to come to these kind of important aspects of his life and then deal with them fully in that moment and then move on. So, for instance, when we are with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you're seeing one aspect of which Roger. Is the, which is the film that Roger wrote the script for. for right. And, you know, that's a very funny section in the movie. And, you know, you kind of hear about Roger was totally taken and excited about working with Russ Meyer in this script and that he had an affection for big-breasted women and that that maybe had something to do with his desire to be a part of this, right? Well, we follow that right up, for example, with the Conference on World Affairs. Now, it starts with a joke about him saying, I, you know, the first 10 years I came to the conference, I came primarily to get laid, and that didn't work. So it makes for a kind of funny transition and a nice transition, mm-hmm. I think. But then I think what the Conference on World Affairs is about is almost like, okay, you've seen Roger the man with an appetite for, you know, uh, women and, and, you know, those pleasures contrasted with Roger the intellectual. And then that's also where you learn that he did Cinema Interruptus which I love that name, uh, you know, which is where he would dive deeply into what a film was. So, you know, so some which of is it, the frame by frame film analysis that he did for many years. Yes, yeah. because I think one of the things I took away from the memoir was he was a man with many facets, many sides. Richard Corliss told us, also not in the film, that, you know, you could talk to 100 different people and get 100 different sides of who Roger was. You're listening to Worldview and WBZ. I'm Milo Stelic, and I'm talking with filmmaker Steve James and Chaz Ebert about the film Life Itself, the new biography of film critic, humanist, giant personality <laughs> hero, Roger Ebert. You said that filmmaking is always a process and a kind of a journey itself. So what did you learn from making this film? Well, I learned much from making this film. Um, If I started out in wanting to follow Roger's life in the present to understand how he, with Chaz's help, had navigated this difficult period of his life these last six or seven years, because we ended up filming the end of his life, you know, the film certainly, I feel like, becomes about the way in which a remarkable man dies and the way in which he does it with incredible grace with dignity and with a sense of humor. I mean, that moment at the end of the film when Chaz, which is one of the, my most favorite interviews I've ever done with anybody, where she talks about that last day and she says that Roger said to her, you know, I've had a wonderful life. You must let me go. We were all quite moved when she told us that when we were filming it. And the idea that someone at the end of their life is comforting Chaz, the person who had fought tirelessly to keep him here, was 
a kind of remarkable statement, I think, about the man. When you love someone that deeply, you just want to make sure that they're not suffering. I thought that Roger was an extraordinary man, and I felt that I had the responsibility to the world to be able to help him continue writing or to do whatever he felt he wanted to do to express himself because I knew how important that was to him. And so when I see some things on the screen, um, anyway, I just, you know, I I loved the movie. I, I did. And I think Roger would love it, too. That was Milos Stalek talking with Chaz Ebert, the widow of Roger Ebert, and Academy Award-nominated director Steve James about the film that Steve James did about Roger Ebert's end-of-life journey called Life Itself. Worldviews contributor Milos Stalek died over the weekend at the age of 70. Tomorrow on Worldview, we continue our trip through Canada and Michigan with a stop in Flint, Michigan, the town that shocked the world when it was discovered that for years, Flint citizens, especially its children, were getting gravely ill from lead poisoning in their drinking water. It was grievous when it became known that many of Michigan state and federal officials knew about it and did nothing. We'll explore issues of privatization, community activism, government corruption. Join us tomorrow on Worldview from Flint, Michigan. Keep following the Worldview bus trip at wbez.org slash wvbus and through the hashtag wvbus on social media. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. J. Kyle White-Sullivan is Worldview's technical director. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. <laughs>